Good morning. So good to be back with you. I was out last week on vacation, and uh, I just want to say a huge thank you, and I'm glad he's here so I can say this. Michael Height, I'm so thankful for you, thankful that you were here to bless us. He did such a phenomenal, did such a phenomenal job, uh, and I'm so thankful that he and his wife Jennifer are partners here at South City Church. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but God is bringing some incredible leaders to our church. Have you noticed that? Incredible leaders. And, and this is what I think about that. I think there's a work to be done. I think there's a work to be done, and God is bringing the workers so that we can see a harvest, so we can see God do something that only he could do, and he's bringing amazing people to help us do it. So thank you, uh, Michael, for doing that with us. And, and, and uh, I just ask that you guys pray for me because we got Jeff and Michael and Jerry and El, all these great pastors, and i got to preach to these guys every week. Pray for me. You know what I mean? So uh, anyway, listen, I turned 46 this week. Thank you. That's wasn't that hard to, you know. Wasn't that big of a deal, wasn't that hard to do, but I will say, for my birthday, I decided to throw my back out. So um, that's what you get when you turn 46, evidently, right? So last week, Michael continued our story in the book of Acts, in chapter 11. He talked about Peter being criticized for going to Cornelius' house, and, and they all get saved, and the Holy Spirit falls, and uh, the, the Jerusalem believers are asking this question. They're saying, hey, what's, what's the deal with this? Why, why would you do this? Why would you go into their house? He's being criticized. And uh, Michael did such a good job with that. It's just so good. But I, I love the very last thing, in, the very last verse of his text. I want us just to look at that verse because it reminds me a lot of what God is doing here at South City. Uh, Acts 11 verse 18 says this. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, well then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I just love that because it reminds me so much of my own life and so much of what God is doing here that sometimes God does something so much bigger than you, so much bigger than your vision, so much bigger than your past, bigger than your mind can comprehend that you're just dumbfounded. Have you been there? You hear about him doing something or you experience something in your life and you just go, wow, you know what I'm talking about? I just love when God does that. He just blows our minds so much that we can't, we don't even have a thing to say. It's absolutely beautiful. And the Gentiles, I mean, the Jews had had this custom, these traditions that were such a big deal to uphold. And we know that it was connected to, obviously, to racism as well. And so there was this, a section of this custom and, and tradition that they just didn't want to change because of what they were used to or what they wanted. But God was blessing the salvation to the Gentiles, and they finally start to get it, and they're overwhelmed. They don't have a word to say. So Dr. Luke brings us back to the overall message of Acts. Do you remember why Acts was written? Do you remember the purpose of the book? So I want to just make sure you understand and you get this clearly. If you, if you pull back the lens on the book of Acts or the letter of Acts, you will see that this book is about uh, the expansion of the gospel. This is about the following up of Jesus saying, go into all the world and make disciples. Baptize them, teaching them all the things I've taught uh, you. Teach them to observe these things. I'll always be with you. This is, the, this is the, the fruit of that. This is taking place. The expansion of the gospel is going forth. And the other thing it's about is the establishment of the church. When you pull back the lens 
of Acts. Because when you, when you, when you pull in, you see amazing stories. You see amazing people. You see amazing miracles. But when you pull back, you realize that all those things go to serve these two ideas. The gospel is going forth, and it goes forth through the church. That's you. That's me. As a church, Elvis was saying this this morning, we exist for mission, to be about the mission of Jesus. That's why the church exists, and that's what we see in this text this morning. Look with me, if you would, in our text. This is Acts 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, who also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the uh, church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church. And taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We're going to stop there just for a moment. I want you to see this whole passage begins and ends with what, why the church exists. We exist for mission. It begins and ends with mission. But there's kind of an interesting piece to this. We see that mission is going forth. Expansion of the gospel is going forth because of persecution. Can I ask you a personal question? Have you ever been in your life in a place and God does something and moves you out? He moves you out of a relationship. He moves you out of a neighborhood, out of a home, out of a job. Have you been there? And you didn't want to leave? Have you ever been there? We probably have all been there at some point or another. There's times where God moves us out of a comfort zone and puts us in a place that is not necessarily that much comfort, right? And some of you this moment might be in difficult situations, in a place you don't want to be, in a job you don't want to be. It's hard, but I want you to see you need to have a perspective that God knows what he's doing in your life. Can you imagine being one of these early Christians? I mean, when we look at Acts 2 and Acts 4 and just the beauty of this, this community, this church community, all that God is doing and all of a sudden now one of their own, Stephen, has been stoned. And they're freaking out. The church is freaking out. we got to get out of here. And they, they take off. They run because they're being hunted. <laughs> they're being hunted down and, and they run. And the last thing they're thinking on their minds, I'm sure, is God sure is going to use this. I can't wait to see how this works. They weren't thinking that. In the same way that when God does something difficult in your life, you don't go, wow, thanks, God. But maybe we should. Because he accomplishes things in difficult times that we can't see or understand. But he's with us and he's got a purpose, right? Sometimes God forces us. He forces us in new directions because he has a plan we can't see. Can I just encourage you this morning? God's got a plan you can't see. Let your faith be stronger than your fear. Let me say it again. Let your faith be stronger than your fear. 
to know that God uses everything in your life. Every broken moment, every crisis, every tear, he catches, the word says. He's going to use it for his glory, and he does that in the church. All right, so I want to bring us back to Acts 8, because that's when we first hear after Stephen's death about the persecution and uh, the gospel expanding into these other areas, okay? This is Acts 8, verse 1, says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was a bad man. But let me tell you what the gospel does. (laughs) I love this story because it shows you both ends of this beautiful story. The persecution is happening partly because of Saul. He's a murderer. He's torturing people. He's literally dragging men and women out of their homes who believe in Jesus. But as we get into our story in Acts 11, we see that that's not the end of his story. God changes him, doesn't it? He changes his heart. He changes his mind. He changes his passion. The reason he lives is purpose. And now we see Saul doing the very mission in the very places that he calls the people to scatter to. Isn't that crazy? And sometimes, sometimes you find yourself as a believer in Jesus going, I'm here? Really, God? That's how good he is. That's how amazing he is. He can do a 180 in your life if you let him. One of the things I love about this story are all the different people involved. You know, the book of Acts, the story of Acts, I've said this before, it's not about people. It's not about Saul, who later changes his name to Paul. It's not about Peter. It's not about Barnabas. It's not about Philip. It's about Jesus. It's about the Holy Spirit of God. But the thing I want you to see and take away today is that each of us matters. Each of these people in this story, they matter. They each had a role to play. They each had a part to play. Some of them seemed smaller than others. We hear more about some people than we do others. But they all matter. My question for you to be thinking about as we talk about this today is, what's your role? What's your part? What's your purpose? Because I promise you have one. Because there's a heartbeat in your chest. And there's breath in your lungs. And if that's the case, there's a purpose for your life. Let's figure out what it is and be about what God wants to do. So I want to look at some of the people, all these individual supporting characters, can we? So we know Saul, right? He's, he's, because of this persecution, he's hunting men and women down. He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus shows up. Remember? He's, Jesus reveals himself to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? I'm sorry, to Saul. And so Saul goes into Damascus blind, and then the Lord speaks to who? Ananias. Remember, this small seems like supporting character. But he's got a huge role. He says, Ananias, I want you to go to this murderer and uh, pray over him. Ananias is like, excuse me, remember? What? Do what? Did I hear you wrong? You know who this guy is? You know what he's doing? Then he involves Ananias, and Ananias goes and prays. Saul receives Jesus. Saul gets baptized. Ananias gets to help disciple Saul in this new way. It's amazing. It's amazing. We see Philip preaching through Samaria. Jeff Franks did such an amazing job on that text. Philip is teaching. He, he, he runs into a, a guy, the Ethiopian official, remember? 
And the Ethiopian official, who knows how God uses his life back in Ethiopia. All these different characters. Peter, we've already seen Peter and John and the disciples, but we're reintroduced to Peter and his mission. He goes into these coastal areas, ends up in Caesarea with Cornelius and his family and all his friends. And we know how significant that was because they come to know Jesus, but then the Holy Spirit falls on them just like he did at Pentecost, except these aren't Jews, these are Gentiles. It's like God saying, this is my blessing. I'm blessing the salvation of the Gentiles. This is a seminal moment. This is a big deal. Huge deal. And yet Cornelius plays a part. The guys who go get Peter play a part. All, all these different characters. And then we come to our text today. And I really like this text. Because if you look in this text, you see there's a couple of guys. We're not even given their name. We don't even know their name. You know why? Their name is not important. But what we see is their obedience. We see their passion. We see their desire to take Jesus to the world. All we know about these guys is that they're from uh, Serene and Cyprus. And they, they, they're just being obedient. They're, they have a fire in their soul to take the gospel of Jesus to the world. You see the story about in Acts and the story today, which is continuing, is it's not about me. South City Church is not about me. It's not about Jerry, it's not about Elvis, it's not about Daryl, it's not about any of our elders. It's about Jesus, yet he uses each of us for his glory. Some of the smaller part than others, I don't know. But what's yours? Are you stepping into it saying, God, will you use me for the story you're telling at South City Church? Will you help me to know the purpose that you have for my life? I love this because there's different people, different ways, there's different assignments but it's all of our jobs to spread the gospel of Jesus. We all play a part. We all play a part. Different things that we do, one mission. One unified mission to make Jesus known. When I think about these two guys and the excitement that they have to go to Antioch, and we're going to talk about Antioch in just a second, but um, I just think about the word gospel. You know what the word gospel means, right? Good news, it's translated, but actually a better translation than good news is breaking news. You remember uh, 9-11, I always use this example when I'm talking about the gospel because all of us, when I say the, the, the numbers 9-11, all of us in our mind can probably go back to where you were, what you were doing, who mentioned something to you. You might have been at the gas station. You don't know the guy next to you and you're like, hey, have you heard? Have you heard what's, you know? It's like we need to tell people what's happening because it's such a big deal, you know what I mean? That is breaking news. Have you heard about this thing? Did you hear what's going on? That's breaking news. And that's what we sense from these guys. They're, they're being persecuted. They're being driven out of Jerusalem. And they're come to this, these towns, right? Phoenicia and then the island of Cyprus and, and over to uh, Antioch. And Antioch is a crazy, crazy city. And they come in with this gospel breaking news. And they don't go just to the Jews. The text says that a lot of the Jews that are being persecuted go to these three places and they speak only to the Jews. They do that, again, part custom, part racism. They speak quietly. Like we just keep this to us, right? This is just about us. These guys, you don't see that. They speak to the Hellenists. And in this context, it's not Hellenistic Jews. These are just Greek-speaking people, which they are. They speak. And though they're Hellenistic Jews, they're going to these Hellenists. They're going to these Greek-speaking people and telling the story of Jesus. 
And, and God has already kind of given his blessing of the salvation of the Gentiles. And so this is moving forward. This, I just, I love that they, they're not even mentioned. Their names are not even mentioned. Can I just remind you of this? You don't have to be a preacher to preach the gospel. You don't. You don't have to have a title of minister to serve people and care for people. You don't have to. Go with what you've been given. Go with the breaking news of salvation in your life and the change in your own heart and who God is to the world. You don't have to have a name, a title. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. You know, I love, um, <laughs> you know, I, we're seeing people, hearts being changed, lives being turned around at South City. It's so, it's so amazing. And last, I'll be honest, last Sunday morning we were at a place. We were on our way home from a little vacation trip my family was. And this is the place I love to be. So I, of course, was uh, looking for you and, and found my sweet friend Tracy's uh, Facebook live feed. Uh, and she, I don't think she's ever done it. She's not doing it this morning. I don't know what that says about her preacher. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> Michael, you got the live feed. You know what I'm saying? But I'm so glad she did because I tuned into her. I was watching her, her, her feed. I watched the whole message, and the whole time I'm watching, I'm just tears flowing down my face because I'm thinking about Tracy. I'm thinking about her life. I'm thinking about how God is working in her in amazing ways, and I'm thinking about the message that Michael is preaching so beautifully, and I'm thinking about you, and my heart is moved with love for you and what God is doing here. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's not about one single person. Let me just tell you, your PR will always be better than the church's PR. We can tweet all day long about how much we'd love for you to come to South City and we're doing this or that. But when you speak to your friends and your family and you say, oh, there's something going on there. It's not perfect, but there's something going on. God's doing something. I'm telling you, people listen. And God uses that kind of breaking gospel news in your life and in the lives of others. So these believers had gone up the coast of the Mediterranean, the Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, which is just a little island in the Mediterranean just west of Antioch. And they've gone all the way to Antioch. Antioch is 300 miles from Jerusalem. It's a pretty good hike. 300 miles. And it is a huge, huge place. Uh, they've gone, they've gone to, to share the gospel. They're, you know, these, these folks are going into synagogues, kind of the same way that Saul did. The first place he said, well, I'm going to take the gospel to the people that are like me that need to see the truth need to know who Messiah is, so they go to synagogues. These brothers obviously didn't. They just go to the Hellenists, and they begin to speak what they know. Now, the thing about Antioch is it's huge. Antioch in that day is about a half a million people, okay? It's bigger than urban Little Rock. It's a big place. It's a big, big place. Uh, if I were to kind of help you understand the size, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, after Rome and Alexandria and then Antioch. If I can help us understand what that means. If you've been to New York City, you know there's a lot of people, right? I'm, I'm not a country boy, but in New York, I'm like, uh, I just feel a little unsettled. There's so many people, you know? New York has, with all of their uh, high-rises and skyscrapers, which, by the way, are 93% of the buildings in New York are high-rises. Why? So they can get more people on one plot of ground, right? Well, in New York today, it's about 100 people per acre with all the high-rises. 
in Rome in this day, 300 people per acre. No high-rises and no sanitation to speak of. It's a lot of disease, a lot of craziness. Antioch, 200 people per acre. I mean, you're shoulder-to-shoulder, elbow-to-elbow with people. This is a very busy place. It's a very uh, cosmopolitan place. There's Romans. I'm talking retired soldiers. There's wealthy people. There's uh, poor people. There's Greeks. There's Syrians. There's Phoenicians. They all combine their wealth, their lifestyle. Um, They combine uh, their religions. They combine their wickedness. And Antioch is an extremely wicked place. It's extremely dark place. So we know when there's wickedness, there's darkness. But we know what happens when you light a a match in the dark, right? It just pushes back the dark. It's a perfect opportunity for the gospel. It's that light in the darkness to say, oh, no, there's something more. There's something greater. And that's what we see happening with these two brothers. Antioch was such an incredible place. I I read this week that it... uh, It was the first place in the ancient world that had lighting at night. They had burning lights at night. They actually had a road that went through Antioch that was four miles long, and it was paved with marble and columns on the side. Four miles. That's a pretty big deal in the ancient world. And yet these two men go in, regardless of the wickedness, regardless of the size and the scope of the task at hand, and they go in. What do they do? The text says they go in preaching Jesus. That's what they do. They go in with an exciting, the breaking news of their lives is you have to hear about Jesus. You have to know this Savior. Yes, he's Messiah, but he takes away your sin. He gives you the life that he created you for. And when this is going on, the church of Jerusalem hears about it, and they're going, what? What is happening? First of all, we had to deal with the Gentiles over in Caesarea and Cornelius, this guy, and What's happening now in Antioch? You're kidding me? Gentiles are coming to Christ. and So what do they do? They send Barnabas. Now, we talked about Barnabas last summer. I really, really like Barnabas. I really do. He's just an amazing character. What do we know about him? We know he's also from Cyprus. So that could have been a reason. They could have said, well, you, there's a guy from Cyprus that's running this thing down there. You're from Cyprus. Why don't you go down? It could have been one of the reasons. We know he's a good man. Uh, We know he's a solid believer, dependable, he's generous. Acts 4 says, it kind of uses him um, in contrast. You might remember at the end of Acts 4, talks about the fact that he had sold some property and he brought the money of that property to the feet of the elders, to the disciples and said, here, he was generous and his heart was pure. He was authentic because uh, Luke uses him in a juxtaposition against uh, Ananias and Sapphira. They also gave money from land that had been sold, but they didn't have a good heart. They weren't authentic. They were hiding. They were lying. They were trying to be impressive in some way that didn't honor God. And, of course, we know that they paid dearly with their lives for it. He's a good man. Verse 24 says in in chapter 11, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. Acts uh, 4.36 says they changed his name. I love this. You ever had somebody in your crew that you just, their name just doesn't fit, so you give them a nickname? You know? It's like calling Tawan tiny. You know, it's just... You know, Lord, my wife gets this one a lot, shiny. She just shines. If you know my wife, when you're around her very much, she shines. And so a lot of her friends call her shiny. That's what happened with Barnabas. His name was Joseph. And they're like, mm-mm, Joseph won't do. Nope. 
We're going to call you Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. They're saying, you're such an encourager. You're such a good guy. You're helping people all the time. we got to name you. you got to have a different name than Joseph. And what does Barnabas see when he comes to the church at Antioch? It's not really even a church. just believers who are trusting Jesus. Just the beauty of the gospel taking root in Antioch, this dark, wicked place. They send Barnabas, and he shows up, and what does Scripture tell us? It says that Barnabas sees the grace of God in these people. I love that. He sees the grace of God in these people. You know what I wish? If anybody comes into South City Church, I hope that's what they see. Man, I see the grace of God in these people. What does that mean, to see the grace of God? Well, we know that the grace of God is unmerited favor, right? It's something we don't deserve. And when you have a good grasp on grace in your own life, it changes your life. It changes your worship. Listen, sometimes I look like a fool worshiping. I don't care. We were at this conference this week, and they did this little video, uh, showed this guy, and he was, it was about sin, and it just wrecked me. I was bawling my eyes out because I know grace, because I need so much of it. Barnabas saw grace at work in the lives of these people. They knew they didn't deserve Jesus. They knew they didn't deserve his kindness and his mercy. The word says, Lord, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. They didn't deserve it. They knew it. This place was full of grace. Barnabas was happy about that. He begins to teach. It says he begins to exhort and encourage them. That's what he was. He was an encourager. And he encourages them to be faithful to the Lord. What does it mean to be faithful to the Lord? Well, we have his word. We have an understanding of how he wants us to live, who he wants us to be, what he wants our eyes to be towards, what he wants our hearts to be focused on, what he wants our will to be motivated for, the purpose of our lives. To be faithful to him is to serve him, to be obedient to him, to love him, to do what he's asked us to do. And can I just tell you, that is the purpose of the covenant of our church. We just went through this covenant season in June. The purpose of covenant is to encourage one another to be faithful to God. That's the purpose. The purpose of the covenant is to say, elders, will you please help us be faithful to God? That's the purpose of the covenant. And Barnabas is saying, he sees the grace of God, and he encourages them to live a life of faithfulness. Why do we live a life of faithfulness? Because Jesus died for you, and the least you can do is to live for him to be faithful to him with your life. He encourages them to be faithful. And then he says something that's so interesting to me. He says, be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Steadfast purpose. What is steadfast purpose? Well, purpose is why you exist. This is why we exist. This is why I do what I do. This is why I'm gifted the way I'm gifted to do this thing. Some of you know what that is. And some of you don't. And it's time we find out because God's got a plan. He's got a purpose for each of us. But it's not enough just to have a purpose. Because many of you have that now and you're not living in it. I love, I love the, the stair step of this story. It's, there's grace in our lives that changes us from who we were to who God wants us to be. And then there's an encouragement to live a life of faithfulness for Jesus. And then... We're built up even further when we learn what our purpose is and we're steadfast about that purpose. And we say, no, this is why I exist. 
To be steadfast means to be, I love this word, resolute. Determined. Confident. Unwavering. This is why I exist. I will be steadfast in my purpose. Friends, if you think your purpose is making money and working your job, you are wrong. It's deeper. It's bigger. What is your purpose? Do you have a resolute passion, a steadfast desire to be about that purpose? That's what God has for you. That's what he wants to do in your life. He wants to use you. And then it says for the second time in this text that a great number of people come to the Lord. I love that. The second time. The first time is when the two brothers who are unnamed, a great number of people come to the Lord and turn. They don't just say they believe. It says they turn their lives to the Lord. By the way, it's a big, a big deal. Not enough just to say, yeah, I believe. You need to turn your life. It's the very definition of repentance. When I say, I believe, yes, but I'm turning my life from my way, God, to your way. That's what repentance is. I'm turning my life, my heart, my desire, everything I'm turning to your way. And this is the second time that Luke has told us a great many people have come to the Lord. Listen, Barnabas has done a great job. Barnabas is doing a great job. People are coming. The church is growing. The light is shining bright in this dark place. Barnabas could have gone, pretty good church planner. I need to start teaching this. This is pretty good. I need to start a blog. You know? That's not what Barnabas does. Barnabas, he may feel overwhelmed. There's so many people. There's so many great many people coming that he's going, oh, my gosh, what do I do? Which happens in church planning quite a bit, by the way. But Barnabas, the big thing I want you to see here is Barnabas sees it's not about him. This is not Barnabas' story. And so what does he do? He goes, well, who do I know? Who do I know that, that's really good with Gentiles and, and can teach the word? And, I mean, it was obvious. It was Paul. It was Saul, remember? It was so obvious. So he goes to find Saul. I think this is just a, a, such an unbelievable humility, an act of humility humble act for him to say, I know it's not about me. There's no sense of competition. It's shared leadership. I love the quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson that says, there's no limit. There's no limit to what we can accomplish if we're not worried about who gets the credit. I love it. I try to remind myself of that all the time. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. These guys, their names weren't even in the story. And yet, they're the ones that started the church, God used them in such a way that this incredible church at Antioch, which is a very important center of mission, becomes even more of a center of mission than Jerusalem. And a couple of unnamed guys got it started. I love that. There's no limit to what we can accomplish if we don't care about who gets the credit. God uses different gifts in different people. I, I'm very, uh, a very firm believer in this. I know there's churches with, with senior pastors and they kind of run the church. I, I know that. I'm not saying anything against that. I'm just saying I believe Scripture shows us so clearly the value of shared leadership. Can I just tell you something that, that happens with men and women? We go bad. <laughs> we go wrong. We make bad decisions. We have wrong motivations in our hearts. We need each other to pull us, to hold us faithful. We need each other. Barnabas gets that. He understands that. He needs help. He doesn't hesitate to go find Saul. 
Not worried about what it's going to look like. It's not worried about how much leadership or power I've got to give up. I just need to disciple these people. And the guy I've got to find is Barnabas. He remembers Saul's calling. You remember what uh, the Lord said to Ananias? When he was telling Ananias to go to speak to Saul? This is what he says in Acts 9.15. He says to Ananias, But the Lord said to him, Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul shares this with Barnabas. There's no question that Saul had been told this. Ananias told Saul this. Saul knew that his calling, his mission, was to the Gentiles. Barnabas knew this. I don't know if you remember this, but it was Barnabas that had taken up for Saul. You see, when, when Saul was in Damascus, he comes to know the Lord. He goes off to Arabia for three years. He's being discipled. He's working. He's pastoring. He's bringing people to Jesus. He comes back to Damascus. And then from Damascus goes to Jerusalem. Well, when he gets to Jerusalem, all the disciples are like, uh, aren't, you the, aren't you the Saul that killed the, uh, yeah. It's been a few years, but you're the killer. I saw you drag my neighbor out of his home. It was the whole family. That's you. But you know what Barnabas did? Barnabas came up along Saul, put his arm around Saul, said, no, 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 you guys. Jesus showed himself to this guy. He's been preaching the gospel He's been making a difference in this mission that we're all in together. He's one of us. He stands up for Saul. That's what Barnabas did in Acts 9.26. And I love this. He brings him back. So so Barnabas leaves Antioch. He goes about 85 miles uh, over to, skips over a little jaunt of uh, inlet of the Mediterranean to this little town called Tarshish. And theologians believe this was a hard task. You can imagine. There's no cell phones there's no addresses. There's no, it's just like, go find a guy in a city. Okay, right? So Barnabas is needing help with the church. He goes to Tarsus. He finds Saul. He shares with Saul the need. Saul comes back to Antioch. Look at Acts eleven twenty six. For a whole year, they, they met with the church. They taught a great many people. Here's that word again. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They pastored together for a year and shared leadership. It's beautiful. And I want to focus now on the second phrase of that sentence there. The, Christian, the, the disciples are called Christians first here at Antioch. That's significant. I mentioned it in a message a couple of weeks ago. Let me tell you about Antioch real quick. So Antioch was built with the understanding that it was going to be a diverse city. Very diverse city. So they built a wall around Antioch. For protection, keeping people out, keeping people in, whatever. But it wasn't only the wall around the city, it was also the walls in the city. They built 18 different quadrants within Antioch. Why? Because they knew there would be that many different cultures and people from different races, languages, preferences. And they thought if we can keep them separate, we can keep the city safe. And then the Christians show up. And they messed the whole thing up. You know why? Because it wasn't just the Jewish Christians in their little quadrant. Now these guys are speaking the truth of Jesus to the Gentiles. And now there's Phoenicians that are coming to know Jesus. And there's Asians coming to know Jesus. And they've got this, he's got this guy with him, a, a black man from uh, Serene. And he's a Middle Eastern man from Cyprus. And it's like there's all these cultures that are combining and connecting. They're going around the walls this is not how the city is supposed to work. 
and they don't have a name for this group of people. And so in derision, in, in, a, in a diss, in, in an in a accusation sort of way, they say, oh, look at the Christians. Christian at the time it just meant you belong to Jesus' party. You're part of what he's done. You, you believe in what he believes, which we know today is a, is a compliment. But back then it was not. Back then it was a, a negative statement. But what's interesting is we know the early church says we're okay with that. <laughs> we're okay with that title. To say that we're little Christs, what that means, we're okay with that. We want to be a people whose identity is found in Christ. It's not found in the color of our skin. Does the color of our skin matter? Do our cultures matter? Sure, they matter. God gave us the color of our skin, the cultures that we have. We should value them. But not over our identity in Jesus. There's nothing that matters more than that. I'm a proud American. I would die for my country. I didn't serve in the military. Sometimes I wish I did because my dad and my grandfathers and so many of you have served, and you're my heroes. And I would give my life for my country, I would. But before I'm an American, I'm a believer in Jesus. That's my identity. Before anything else, before any other cultural ideology at all, I am a Christ follower. And that's what these believers were saying. It doesn't matter about the cultures we come from or the part of the city we're supposed to be in. We're coming together under the identity of Jesus. Wondering about this question. Has anybody ever mocked you for your faith? Ever mocked you for your faith in Jesus? And then I thought this. If they haven't, is it because they don't know you have one? Because Jesus promised we would be persecuted. He would promise, he promised that we would be sort of made fun of. There'd be situations that we had to deal with. But not if the whole world around you, your circles, don't know you believe. Do they know? Now listen, I want to just make an acknowledgement here. I know that evangelical Christianity has taken a big hit in the last several years. And um, there's a lot of people that are saying they're Christians that are not. And that's a, it's sort of a weird term in some ways. I want to say this, to be a Christian is not a political position. It's not a political position. And I, I don't want us to be known for the things we're against more than the things that we are for. But I do want an understanding that a Christian means the world knows our identity is in Jesus alone. It does mean that we long to be found in him, in his life, and in his ways. That nothing matters more than our relationship to Jesus. You know, the man that was responsible for building Antioch, Alexander the Great. There's a story that uh, he heard about a soldier that had his name, Alexander. The problem was the soldier was a coward. Alexander the Great was not. So he said, I want to, I want to see that soldier. So he brought this Alexander before him. He said, is it true your name is Alexander? And the soldier said, yes. Is it true that you were named after me? And the soldier said, yes. He said, well, but I heard you're a coward. He says, so I'll make this real clear. You got two choices change your name or find some strength. Church, can I just say, if you call yourself a Christian, you got two choices. <laughs> you got two choices. Don't call yourself a Christian if you don't live like one, or find some heart and strength and faith in the one that gave you life and died for you on the cross and be known as a Christian who loves him, 
who serves Him, who, uh, who lives for Him. Let your name, let the name of Christian be something that you wear as a, as a badge of honor, an identity beyond any other identity that you may have. All right, I want to close this morning with the last part of our text, Acts eleven, twenty-seven. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now in these days, one of the spiritual gifts that God had given was the ability to foretell the future. And the purpose of that was so that the church would know what God's will was. What, how do we respond to what you've shown us by the Spirit, it says in the text. And God showed them through the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine, and the famine was going to be back in Judea. So where all these believers had, had come from and been cursed, persecuted from, now they're, any other believers that are still there, they're going to struggle with uh, starvation. And they're going to face a hard time. Theologians believe this is about eighty forty six. Now we know that the church in Jerusalem didn't always struggle. Acts 2, Acts 4 talks about having enough. They shared with one another. It was a beautiful you know, community sharing. The need didn't seem to be as great as it is in this famine. It just reminded me of our church. This church was Temple Baptist Church. And for many years, this church flourished. 800 to 1,000 members. The place packed. I tell the story of waiting in, in the uh, stairwell in the Family Life Center for people to go up one stair at a time. It was so packed. You could get to your Sunday school class. At one time, this place flourished. But there are seasons in a church's life. Every church faces different seasons, and Temple began to face a hard season over the years. Splits, disagreements, a famine of spirituality in ways. People chose wrong things, just like all of us can. And what was the church that was a blessing to a whole association, to a whole city? At one time, planning churches, sending missionaries, doing all these wonderful things. I want you to know the last couple of years, We've not been able to do that. As South City, we've received money from different churches. Fellowship Bible Church has sent us money. The Baptist Missionary Association has supported us and helped us with money. We are being supported by others right now because we've been in a difficult season trying to grow and reestablish the gospel presence in this community. But can I say this in faith? And would you believe with me, partners of South City, would you believe with me? We will lead again. And we will invest in other churches again. And we will help. We will send missionaries. We will be the church that God wants us to be again. One day at a time, right? But there's different seasons in the church. And this was a season in the church of Jerusalem. I want to show you two things here before we go. I want you to see that, that text that says the disciples in Antioch were determined. Listen, anytime you give money, whether it be for your offering or for special offering or whatever, it's hard. But I love the fact that Luke puts this in there. The disciples in Antioch were determined to follow the Spirit's leading and, and give support to the church in Jerusalem. They were determined. Can I just encourage you to be determined? If God's calling you to give, if he's calling you to be a partner, if he's calling you to, to serve, he's calling you to help, be determined and say, this is what God's called me to do. 
And I know it's not going to be easy. And I know there's other things that could take my attention and my financing, but God's called me to be a part of this, and I want to be a part. I want to be determined. And then secondly, you need to know this, the second phrase. They were going to give each one according to his ability. But listen, we can't all give the same thing. We don't all make the same income. And so we can't all give the same offering. I love the story in Luke 21 where Jesus is kind of teaching his disciples, and I believe he's doing it on site. And so he looks over at the fancy-dressed legalists, Pharisees. He says, oh, these guys pray all the fancy prayers. They want to make sure you, you see them. Uh, giving, right? And then he gives their attention to this widow. He says, now watch her. And the Bible says she puts in what's worth a couple of pennies, a widow's mite. Really wasn't worth anything. Jesus wasn't saying the amount of money is what matters here. He didn't, it wasn't what he was trying to teach his disciples. He was saying it's the amount of sacrifice that matters. It's the amount of obedience. It's the amount of faith that matters. Look, she has nothing and she's giving everything. Oh, the faith that she has. God hasn't called us to equal sacrifice, to equal amounts. He's called us just to have sacrificial hearts and faithful lives to give the way God leads us to give and to be determined to give. I want to wrap up this morning. On the back of your card, there's a little list. And you might want to fill these in real quick before we go. So an effective church, and in my heart and my prayer the prayer of our elders, the prayer of our staff, I know your prayer as well, is that we be an effective church. And this story shows us what it looks like. An effective church needs to be preaching Jesus. An effective church needs to be putting him above all things, leading out in mission, preaching Jesus. Not just me, all of us. You don't have to have a title, remember? You don't have to have permission, remember? God's hand was with him, his presence. That's the next one, God's presence The Lord's hand was with him. We need his presence. And if we're being obedient to his commission, Jesus said, I will be there with you to the end of the age. His presence will be with us. People, we need to see people believing in Jesus, turning their hearts to him, people being saved. We need to see that life taking place. And can I just say this morning before we sing in just a minute, do you know him? If you don't, if you have any question in your soul, would you come find me? Let's settle that this morning. That you've not just believed, but you've turned your life, and you've repented, you've turned your life to Jesus. Next, we need to see people growing in grace, as Barnabas found in Antioch, and discipleship. And we need to be encouraged in our faithfulness to love and serve him with a steadfast purpose. We need to follow the Holy Spirit's leading. When he says for us to give or go or do or whatever, my prayer is that we have a sensitivity to him, that we will just be obedient. And we'll serve wherever he asks us to serve. We'll give to those in need. And we'll send leaders out in mission. The story begins and ends in the mission of Jesus. Listen, I hope this morning that you found yourself in a place of grace where you know that you don't deserve the goodness and the mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus, but you've accepted it. And it's changing you. And that you're intentionally, deliberately choosing to be faithful in how you live and how you love him with your lives. And lastly, that you find your purpose and that you live it with a steadfast, dynamic passion that makes a difference in this world for Christ. Would you pray with me?
Father, thank you for this story from your word today. God, thank you for another beautiful snapshot of the church. So completely different than the snapshots we've seen earlier in this letter. And yet so beautiful. The things we see that are consistent is God's grace, the salvation of people. The thing we see consistent is discipleship of people. We see consistent the the leadership of elders. We see consistent the mission of people being sent out of the church to make you known all over the world. So God, I believe in faith that there are people in this room right now who would find your grace today and they would be saved. Lord, would you draw their spirit, would you draw their hearts to you to know the truth of their lives? There are people in this room today, Lord, that need to be reminded that we are called to be a faithful people, serving you with how we live and how we think and how we love, and that we need to be steadfast in the purpose for our lives, because it's not our story, it's your story, and we matter. You've given us life so that we can fill a role, we can serve in some way, and live out this purpose to make Jesus known. God, would you do a work in each of our lives, wherever we are, on what part of the journey we may be on. Would you help us to put aside what, we th- what other people think of us, any fears or concerns that we may have, Lord, and just say, Lord, I, my identity is going to be in you. Call me a Christian. I will take that title and I will live to the best of my ability by God's grace to it. Lord, would you help us in our hearts right now to reflect on what we need from you, where we are with you, and what you're doing in our lives, would you give us the courage to step out of the status quo, to step out of what has been maybe our faith journey that maybe hasn't established much, hasn't done a whole lot. We haven't seen a lot of fruit, God, and help us to realize maybe we need to change. Maybe we need to step in some place that you're working, be a part of something, God, that only you can do. Take some risks. Tell some people about Jesus. Move us by your spirit, God, and give us the courage to be obedient. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.